This is Bent Notes Queer Musicology Podcast. I'm George Haggett. You're listening to episode 7. This episode's interviewer is Professor Rachel Calgill. Rachel is Professor of Music at the University of York and Chair of the Royal Musical Association LGBTQ Music Study Group. Her recent publications include Art and Ideology in European Opera, The Arts of the Prima Donna in the Long 19th Century, and Music and Ideas of North, which is co-edited with Derek B. Scott. Rachel is joined by male soprano and musicologist Robert Crowe. Robert has been performing as a male soprano since 1992 and got his PhD in historical musicology from Boston University in 2017. The subject of his thesis is also the subject of this episode, 19th century castrato Giovanni Battista Velluti. Velluti is a really fascinating historical subject. He was born in the Italian peninsula in 1780, when the practice of castrating young boys so they'll grow up to sing with unbroken voices was already dying out. But Velluti was castrated when he was eight years old and had a very successful career as a soprano. In this interview, Robert not only talks us through Velluti's life, but also his own practice as a male soprano, performing the music that Velluti sang. The sound recordings in this episode are all from Robert's latest CD, The Romantic Castrato. It was released in June 2020 by Takata Classics and won the American Musicological Society's Noah Greenberg Award for an outstanding contribution to historical performance practices. The pianist is Joachim Enders. This is Rachel Calgill and Robert Crowe on the last operatic, Castrato. Well, I, I didn't really sing much as a kid. I played the clarinet. And then in university, uh, where I went to study law, turns out I hated that. <laughs> and so I, at the same time, had auditioned for the choir and got in as a bad second tenor. I worked my way up to being a bad first tenor, but always knew that I had this falsetto that was much, much better but this was a time, I don't want to say exactly when, although, you know, the first Bush was president. Uh, <laughs> Countertenors were not really a thing in the U.S., and male sopranos were not a thing at all, were really, really not a thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I hesitated making the vocal switch, and then finally I did. So uh, I switched to soprano around the age of 25 and have stayed that way for the last uh, years, Um, and after I turned 40, I realized that, uh, well, I couldn't play teenagers much longer on stage. It didn't matter whether I could still sing the role or not. I just didn't look like a teenager anymore. And it was time to go into a second field, a second profession. And that led me to musicology because I had already, with my first two solo recordings, I had already done all of the research and done modern editions and made a few mistakes, uh, but I, I had already dipped my toe in the musicological pool, so to speak, and so it seemed like a logical next step. What's the difference between male soprano and countertenor? Other than range, a male soprano has, I think in most cases, a lot slenderer sound, and we'll use, uh, and this will seem counterintuitive, but we'll use a lot more chest voice. Uh-huh. A countertenor will usually, especially an English countertenor, but American countertenors, European countertenors as well, and now increasingly all over the world, uh, they take, carry their head voice down quite a lot further. But if you do that, you tend to lose the high notes, the very high notes, everything above an F sharp or a G. Uh-huh. And so a male soprano obviously can't do that, but if they sing the later repertoire from Mozart on into the 19th century, they have to have a low G and a high B flat. And you can't really have both of those things at the same time using one register. So for a male soprano, it's how to negotiate 
the break because it's always going to be there, mm. whereas a countertenor often can avoid it. And is there a difference in terms then of, of dynamic at the different points in the voice? Um, oh, it depends a lot. It depends on the voice. It depends on the age. I used to be a very different singer mm-hmm. when I was in my 20s. Now I have a lot more chest voice, and my low notes are in many ways just as loud as the high notes. Right. I, I, I have to still negotiate my passaggio like uh, everyone that has to deal with the passaggio, and uh, I, I'm more or less artful at that. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, often, uh, sometimes it can't be heard. <laughs> sometimes it can. So in terms of um, your early career as a, as a male soprano, what sort of repertoire were you performing at that point? Lots of Handel, lots of teenagers. Uh, my first big role was Sesto in Giulio Cesare. Yeah. And then I, I did sort of teenagers or young kings, um, Nero in Agrippina, uh, Anastasio and Giustino, uh, Agno in Clemenza di Tito, roles like that. And then as I moved into my 30s, it became sort of more dictators. Giulio Cesare yeah. in, in the Catonia Nudica, a couple of different settings of that. Nero in Popea. As I aged, I moved out of the, the juvenile and into the heavy. <laughs> and now uh, being over 40, I, I sing more concert work. Uh, when I'm on stage, it's usually strange characters. Mm. Uh, I just did an Orfeo Monteverdi where I did La Musica, La Speranza, Euridice, and Apollo. Wow. Well, they sort of bundled it into one character because, you know, Orfeo doesn't really have um, a counterweight mm. as, as a character. And so they thought, well, this is, this is a way to do it, to have the same crazy guy putting on a slightly different costume and wandering through the whole... Because, you know, it's, it's a kind of a weird uh, Commedia dell'arte. Orfeo is quite tragic, but all of the characters around him are a little bit silly. Yes, that's very true. <laughs> and, of course, I was, not a, I, I, I was not at all a beautiful Euridice, but she does have the most beautiful music. Mm. It's not much, what, 20 measures, but it's, it's really gorgeous. And, and as you're developing as a singer... There's obviously the figure of the castrato, the voice for whom these roles were originally written, and a voice that we just... OK, we have Moreski's recordings, don't we, from the early 20th century when his voice is, is past its prime. He was 46, and that uh, most sopranos seem to have stopped... Historically, most sopranos seem to have stopped singing around 40. Mm. The later uh, sopranos, Pacchiarotti, Marchesi... Crescentini, Veluti, they all sang into around 50, but almost all of them, it seems, shouldn't have. Mm. So, yeah, Moreschi, at even 44, I think, the first recordings, was really past that sort of male menopause that seems to have been so decisive in high castrato voices. Oh. Could you say a bit more about that? Well, it's, 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 it's a guesstimation. Roger Freitas has written about that. Martha Feldman has written about it, but, you know, it's all a little bit speculation Mm. because we don't really know. We don't have intact cadavers, so we can't tell what happened. There's a theory that the vocal cords start calcifying. Yeah. Because Castrati, too, used head voice and chest voice. All of the sources of the 18th century and early 19th century are quite clear about that. And what they seem to have lost is not the head voice, but the ability to go from the head voice to the chest voice without an audible break. Right. And so a lot of them simply 
stopped using the head voice altogether historically and would sing privately as an alto mm. or even as a tenor. Pacchirotti sang as a tenor. Mm. And Velluti insisted on singing soprano even though the, the break got worse and worse as he got older. And after the age of 45, unless he was in perfect voice, there was always a crackle as he crossed it. And he was often quite flat, apparently, uh, right around that, I think because he was pushing one register or the other a little bit too far mm. to make up for this inability to bridge the gap. Interesting, very interesting. That's my guess. Yeah. Because the wonderful thing about 1820s vocal criticism is that it's, in comparison with the 18th century, so incredibly detailed. Mm. But at the same time, it's not nearly as detailed as modern vocal criticism is capable of being. So we have to guess a lot about a lot of things. And that tradition, obviously, beyond Veluti, um, in the the treaties, uh, like I said, I mean, Moreski's recordings, very, very wonderful to have those, but, you know. But you hear it in his voice, too. Yeah. You hear the big break between the chest voice and the head voice, and you hear him go very flat at the top of the chest voice. Yes. In order to make up for this inability to sing those couple of notes in a mixed voice. Right. Mm. That's a guess. Yeah, yeah. And that leads into this whole theoretical, hypothetical menopause in the over 40 soprano castrato, mm. which is a real niche market. <laughs> and then, I mean, the classic uh, stamp of the, the you know, castrato voice, the, the, the thing that's always celebrated about the voice is the, the mesa de voce, isn't there? Mm. How, how do you relate to that as a singer? How does that figure in your understanding of the voice and what you do with that music? I actually have a lecture on. Oh well, <laughs> be my guest. <laughs> well, it's uh, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm not in particularly good voice today, so uh, which is why I'm a little bit scratchy and I can't really demonstrate. But no, obviously, I don't use a purely Baroque vocal technique. One because I don't know what it is; no one does, and two because I have to sing music that lies outside of Baroque. But basically. The Mesa di Voce, it's, so I think Corri in 1800 called it the soul of music. Mm. And it's a long crescendo and a long decrescendo on the same note. They should be equal in both length and amplitude. The crescendo and the decrescendo, that's extremely difficult because the first half is easy. Almost everyone can do that. The second half gets very difficult. Yes. <laughs> and sort of the ideal Mesa di Voce is without a vibrato. But in order to get a really powerful mesa di voce, you have to lower the larynx as you uh, increase the volume. Mm. Uh, you, you can do it with the neutral larynx, which is presumably what they did before the 1820s. But the, the apex is not quite as loud. The problem is once you lower the larynx, if you don't allow vibrato in, the pitch will drop. Yeah. Not many singers do a real mesa di voce, but if they do, they tend to allow vibrato in at the top mm -hmm. because otherwise they can't have as large a dynamic range. The trick is then you have to raise the larynx back up without letting the pitch wobble and without losing the placement, without losing the ring. Wow. It's uh, with my early music, my HIP singers, I will spend several days on different mesa di voce on how to, to choose when to do each one. Mm. And the quality of the voice, when 18th century commentators are, are talking about this, there's that sort of sense of the clarion uh, tone, mm -hmm. isn't there? Uh, 
So it's the adult's lungs and the and the physique mm. of the adult, um, but the boy's voice preserved into adulthood and the combination of those two. The length of the vocal cords, I think they probably got thicker. Yeah. Although we don't really know that, mm. I don't think. But I suspect they got thicker, which then would enable them to... Um, I keep thinking of the German uh, Stoßfest. Uh, uh, more durable. Yeah. But that's that, again, is supposition. And I'm not a vocologist. I'm not a voice scientist. Right. But another thing that we lose about, especially alto castrati, when women and when countertenors sing the alto castrato repertoires, there's an awful lot of head voice in there when the alto castrati were using almost exclusively chest voice. Mm. It's much easier to reach that trumpet-like sound. If you think Whitney Houston. Yes. The early Whitney Houston, you can go up to C's and D's and even maybe an E flat in chest voice. And that, I think, is where the trumpet sound comes from. Ah. If you can imagine that as uh, sort of Superboy yeah. using his chest voice, as uh, as boys will do, boys in cathedral choirs, if if they can get away with it, they'll sing chest voice up to C and D in, in a big hymn or something. Wow. Of course, of course, they go flat, yes. but... <laughs> Small price to pay. <laughs> yes. From my perspective, of somebody who works in uh, opera in 19th century Britain, um, the figure of Veluti is is fascinating because he is this very anachronistic figure in a way, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, much of the discourse, much of the association um, with the castrato voice is the 18th century, the ancien régime. And yet, and this is what you highlight so beautifully in the title of the CD, the romantic castrato it was meant to be a joke. Oh, was, but it's brilliant. <laughs> well, it's it's well, not a joke exactly. It's it was meant to have the the double and triple meanings. Yes. You know, because he was as an artist, he was absolutely a person of his of his time. Mm-hmm. But one of the I think inaccuracies of the Veluti's it's not quite scholarship, it's almost fan fiction 
that's been written about Veluti is this idea that he was this incredibly successful ladies' man. And that all stems from Harriet's 1956, The Castradian Opera, and he took that from a 1931 article, but he highly colored his translation. And so reading the original article, it doesn't seem nearly that salacious to me. And then when you go back to all the contemporary uh, stories about him, there's almost nothing that details a private life. Right, that's very interesting. Now, of course, there are over 50 letters from him to his best friend, and I say best friend with implied quotation marks around it because I'm not quite sure how good friends they were. I know they lived together for some time, Perrucchini, mm-hmm. the Venetian composer. But those letters were sold at auction in 97 by Christie's, and Christie's has tried to help me contact the buyer. They can't tell me who it is, but the buyer doesn't want to be contacted. So until those letters, 50 long narrative letters, until they surface, no one can write a biography of Veluti. How frustrating. Because other than that, as far as I know, there's only one significant letter that, that is easily read by the public, and that's a letter from... Veluti to Meyerbeer. Yeah. But that doesn't really say much about him. Is that to do with the commissioning of Crociato and Egito? Well, it's about all of the scenes, how much music he wants to sing, how, what kind of music he likes to sing. Basically, he wanted to have as much leeway as possible to ornament, so not too German, more Italian. From, the, from a singer's perspective, not overly composed in the orchestral accompaniment so that there's enough room to ornament. Mm. Because I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the ornamentation, he does really push very hard against the envelope of tonality. Mm. I think Aubrey Garlington wrote a book about the Fanes, Lord Burgersh and Lady Burgersh. Yeah. And there is a significant amount at the end about Veluti and Veluti's treatments of Lord Burgersh's music. And he talks about this sort of promised but never delivered, not just chromatic excursions, but it's actually almost key changes. Yes. This is interesting um, how Veluti fought against the sort of the standard harmonic language by creating his own on top of it. Mm. But that's all very theoretical and requires a better better music theorist than I am. (laughs) I'm much more of a social historian using music than I am a music theorist. Well, certainly, I mean, again, it... it Coming back to the title of the CD and your idea of the sort of different levels of meaning behind the romantic castrato, um, in some ways you could argue then that his sense of himself as a as a musician is pushing towards a sort of more romantic sensibility of harmony and tonality, perhaps within the limitations of a, a single voice. Well, it reminded me, I'm, I'm sure he knew of Schubert. I don't think he would have met him because he was in Vienna too early. Right. But certainly knew his music, or must have known his music. I, I, don't, I don't have any proof of that, but it seems unlikely that he didn't. But he does something very similar in the same time period, the late 18-teens and the 1820s, of moving towards the third, because the harmonies in these, in these arias are, are really quite, uh, I don't want to say prosaic, they're fairly simple. And I think that's what he liked that because then he could push against it by adding this this mediant mm. or sometimes a submediant. It, he he never actually goes there. You, he can't, but he implies it. I think. Mm. Yeah. But that's a that's a kind of subversive thing that I think he did. And of course, his ornaments, depending upon who was listening, 
were either praised or condemned. Mm -hmm. the, the interesting thing is a lot of people, when they read about the, the condemnation of Luti in the London press, especially the London Times, and to a, a much lesser extent, the examiner, they think, but reading just the content and not the context, that it was a conservative uh, reaction to him. And in fact, some scholars have actually written that in English lit, not in musicology. Uh, but it was actually, it was the opposite. The Tories were the ones that were trying to bring back the Ancien Régime mm -hmm. or, or preserve as much as possible. And they were the supporters of Luti. It was the Whigs, the, uh, the, the then equivalent of the modern-day progressives, so the left side of the spectrum, that were so condemnatory. Mm. Because this was this arising of the kind of social Christianity, like with Dickens, I guess, would be one of the foremost exponents of it. The left-right spectrum is flipped, uh, from our modern perspective. Mm. A very interesting point because, I mean, early 19th century in English periodicals, music criticism, particularly opera criticism, becomes a vehicle for political critique, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Yes. And and you highlight this in your liner notes that the metastasian plot and the castrato voice and those sorts of hierarchical plots are all sort of associated with the old Tory regime, which the new Whig politics are wanting to sweep away. And opera becomes a sort of tool, a, a sort of analogy. Characters within operas and the singers themselves also become kind of pawns in that discourse for putting across that particular... It was interesting how good... Well, of course, everyone had Bernie yeah. in their back pockets, so to speak. Uh, and it's interesting how long the musical memories became when they talked about Velluti, because mm. they, they compared him to Farinelli and being a plaything mm. of aristocratic ladies. And they even brought in Juvenal, the, the Roman satirical poet, yeah. and his condemnation of the castrati, that they reached very, very far back into history yes. in order to uh, mostly to condemn him. Yeah. And it's fascinating, isn't it? Because in London, they haven't really heard a castrato voice on the operatic stage for 25 years, 25 years. So so you can kind of understand them kind of thinking about it in terms of, mm. whoa, this is we, we vaguely remember this a generation ago. But, but what is it doing on our stage now? And of course, the big uh, war horse for him is Crociato and Egito, the it's Rossi, isn't it? Yeah, he wrote pretty much every libretto between 1820 and 1830. <laughs> but it's kind of that style, isn't it? It's a knight. There's the usual thing of mm -hmm. mistaken or hidden identities. and Actually, the, the cover of the CD is Velluti in the character of Armando. Is it really? Uh, and when you look at it, you see the, the helmet and the plumes, and then you see the little white satin ribbon that holds it under his chin, and that, was, <laughs> that caused a lot, of, a lot of mirth. Yes in his, let's say, his enemy periodicals. Yeah. They called it a most injudicious uh, satin ribbon. <laughs> oh, dear, he can't get away with anything. <laughs> but, uh, but it wasn't his favorite opera. His favorite opera was Tibaldo e Risolina by Morlacchi, and that's the one he did the most. And uh, his final performance in 1833, which was also the last performance of a castrato on any operatic stage, as far as we know, was Crociato, but he interpolated his favorite aria from Tibaldo. Of course, <laughs> as you would. <laughs> as you would. But uh, with, with Crociato, they revived King Arthur at Drury Lane and they interpolated um, Rossini and Meyerbeer. 
and of course improved Purcell's music as mm. well. You know, adding bassoons and trombones, and unfortunately, the, I think that score has disappeared. And could you tell us about your relationship with Veluti? I mean, why Veluti kind of stands out as this figure you want to get to know the music that was written for him. Uh, obviously, historically, he's interesting. But as a, as a musician and as a singer, was there something that really drew you to music that he'd written himself or that roles that were written for him? Well, I was drawn actually to him. OK, I grew up on the ocean. And this sounds like... Uh, a non sequitur, actually, it is. Well, I hope it's not. Uh, and I was obsessed with building sandcastles as a kid. I didn't really build them to build the sandcastle. I built them to watch them wash away as the tide came in. I've never really been interested in golden ages. Mm. I, I much prefer watching something that is waning and disappearing, something that's lasted longer than it should, because I find you learn so much more about the period that surrounds it. You learn more about the ocean watching it surround the remains of a castle. When I was a teenager, I was obsessed with the Byzantines, but not, you know, at the time of Justinian, not in the six and seven hundreds, but in the 13 and 14 hundreds, as they were fighting for uh, their uh, ultimately unsuccessful survival. And so for me, Veluti was like the sandcastle. You know, the sandbar is completely covered and the waves are washing it away, but it's still there. I don't know, it's probably a little bit too self-congratulatory, but that I think is, despite that, mm. a fairly accurate way of describing why I came to him and not to Paninelli or to Siface or to any of the others who were really in a golden age. Mm. Even Pacchiarotti, uh, Marchese, they never saw themselves condemned. Mm. They never, they didn't stay too long. Yeah. And that's what I... That's what was so fascinating to me about him was that he was a man out of time and place. I'm thinking about the sorts of lectures that we do for undergraduates on the castrato. Mm -hmm. You know, and we talk about that golden period and those voices and the sort of tropes that come through in the writings about the 18th century castrati. And Veluti gets a mention just in terms of those quotations from the Times, mm -hmm. doesn't he, where... You know, the concern is, well, how on earth do we explain this voice to the ladies in our party? Because, of course, they'll think immediately <laughs> of what's missing because Absolutely. they hear it. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, uh, the Times actually said that. Yeah. That Veluti was a threat to the pure British fair. Yes, shocking. As, as how they put it, because if they heard him, they would think of what wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. Which they had never, ever done before. No, absolutely. 25 years earlier, it never crossed their minds. No. <laughs> So that's what we, we tend to sort of, you know, dip into Veluti and then look forward to Moreschi. And then we usually do this conversation, don't we, about attempts to morph the female soprano and, and the, the countertenor in uh, the movie Farinelli. Yeah. And, you know, which is creating a totally synthetic voice. So that's really the point at which we drop in on Veluti, isn't it? But I mean, what you've done, it seems to me, not only in your written work, but beautifully in this collection of recordings on the CD, is really explore that voice and the music that he created himself through his sets of variations and his own ornamentation, but the music that so many different people also wrote for him. It's a portrait of a singer that we, we're not kind of aware of in the way that we are 
now of the castrato singers who worked so closely with people like Handel and you know it emerges as a really fully fledged voice and a, an, an extraordinary musician through your own revisiting of oh, of his music you asked me why i chose those pieces yeah i i mostly chose the last things he did because his ornamentational art was the most advanced but i also wanted to do the variations because that was what he was famous for and they took the longest to learn <laughs> yes well in a way i mean as, as you talk about in the liner notes it's like the art of fugue the art of ornamentation right and your, your sense isn't it is that uh, Valuti may even not have intended to sing them i think some of them were merely theoretical yeah and i i do perform them in concert but there are two of them i don't perform because they're just they're really violin music yeah. I used his own manuscript score mm. with all of his handwriting with a copyist's hand and his hand in ink mm. and then his hand in pencil. And he used it over several years because he crossed out ornaments and added new ornaments, which made it very difficult to figure out what ornament to include in the edition. Mm. But there are three or four variations that are pristine. Yeah. They're the hardest ones, too. I don't think he ever <laughs> sang them. Maybe he knew them so well he didn't need the music. <laughs> I, well, we don't. We we have. We know that he formed them, and yeah. he, he even performed them playing, uh, accompanying himself in London. Uh huh. But we have no idea how many he performed, and the, as there are eight, and that's that's quite a lot. The standard vocal ornamentations are only two or three. Since it was never published, no one would have known that he wasn't singing all of them. Just thinking about. Uh, what other singers' practices were around that at the time? Angelica Catalani was so well known, mm -hmm. isn't she, um, for her sets of variations, uh, which she sort of brought in. And she actually sang violin variations. Yes, the Rode. Rode variations. And, and there was all this sort of discussion in the press, wasn't there, that, that she's become a, a mechanical singer, that's a very sort of mechanical thing to do, and an instrumental style for the singer to take. I think what's also very interesting is that the way you talk about the venue in which he's singing mm -hmm. much of this music, that, that it's really the private concert, isn't it? And increasingly, you know, for smaller gatherings of aficionados, connoisseurs, uh, the Fanes, for example. Yes. Um, and that's, that seems to And be Wellington. Y yes, yes. And that seems to me fascinating because it's, it's that sort of withdrawal that we associate also with people like Farinelli, somebody like Farinelli who mm -hmm. withdraws to the court. Well, Valuti, I think, kept his career going by utilising this private network mm. because he needed protection, especially in London. And Wellington was a big fan and was, from 1828 to 1830, uh, the prime minister. Yeah. And Wellington was his biggest most most powerful supporter. Burgersh was an early supporter, but Wellington was obviously much more powerful. Mm. And I think Veluti intentionally used all of these aristocratic connections, used these parties where he sang, he would get as much as 100 pounds for singing two arias mm. at Apsley House, for instance, which uh, comes out to over 10,000 pounds in today's money. And there was no income tax. Of course. And he, this would be after he had sung a performance at the King's Theatre for another 80 or 90 pounds. It's good evening's work. <laughs> he was doing well. Uh, this, wasn't, uh, he, this wasn't all that unusual. A lot of singers did this. I think Veluti was the most successful at using it politically. That's very interesting. And uh, the prima donnas would tend to have um, a husband or some sort of manager type figure who would, on the surface of it, negotiate their business dealings, although it seems pretty clear that 
they were often you know running things themselves mm-hmm. do you have a sense that there's an entourage around veluti or is he very much his own his own man that's one of those things that's a bit mysterious he mm-hmm. had a manager Mm-hmm. And he had a servant, and it's not clear to me that they weren't the same person. Right. And the way they talk about it in the press makes me think that they're not saying something. Mm. You know, because libel law was quite strong then. Mm. And so they were very cautious about what they said about him. With satire, they were allowed to say things like with Wellington, but they couldn't say it about Faluti because uh, it would have been too real. And so I'm not sure whether this servant and this manager, his name was Fradoloni, I believe, mm. were not the same person. And that's the person that always traveled with him. And that's the person who, when Faluti died in 1861, according to Federico Veluti, this is he's a historian and Veluti's great, great, great grandnephew, I think. Uh, so he... He's told me some things uh, that basically are just family stories. Apparently, this is the same servant that was with Faluti for 40 years and was fired the morning Faluti died by Faluti's heir and nephew. And before he left the estate, uh, made off with all of the snuff boxes, jewelry, and (laughs) all of the things that Faluti had uh, um, collected over the, the decades all these private presents gosh because sometimes you know they were paid in presents rather than in money yes sort of favors and tokens really yeah and then disappear he disappears from history well 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 (laughs) so i don't know like i said these letters yeah these letters between veluti and perrucchini if they ever show up will Mm. probably shed an awful lot of light Mm. on his private life he did not like being alone apparently Mm. he was oh he always traveled with his prima donnas Mm. He uh, traveled with men and women. He lived with men and women. He never lived alone. Mm. Uh, I just and that, but the thing is, it's men and women, and I don't think you can draw any kind of without better evidence. You can't draw any conclusion other than he just didn't like being by himself. Mm. So we don't have anything like um, Tenducci's marriages or no. Um, yeah. You have you have hints and rumors of that with both genders, but very very few. Yeah, yeah. and it's more it's it's more s- satire. Mm. They wouldn't name him, but they would talk about the tall captain, meaning Wellington. Yeah, was fascinated by the quiverings of Luti, which is you know it's a it's a pun on quaver. Yeah, but it's also obviously sexual. Yes, and there's <laughs> there there are cartoons that shows someone who is obviously Wellington yeah. uh, saying, oh, isn't he a well-made man, looking at Veluti. And Veluti has on these trousers that very, very clearly indicate that he's not a well-made man at all. <laughs> it's so difficult, though, to, particularly given the power and the influence of Wellington, it's very difficult to disentangle the political critique there from right something else you know um as a and they obviously used it that's why i i don't think it really says much about veluti yeah it says more about the political situation and yeah. this was just after the suicide of Castlereagh, wasn't mm-hmm. it yeah, um yes yes or a couple of years yeah so it was very much in the public's mind and byron had had to leave england yeah uh and well actually byron is compared to veluti Mm. saying that in all of his councils in the Greek War of Independence, he was essentially nothing. He was a Veluti. Mm. So a lot of noise, but no value, no content. Yeah. 
So that was there, but I don't think you can extrapolate from that to any kind of concrete idea of what Baluti's private life was like. Mm. It both is and is not a queer studies topic because I didn't use the um, theoretical framework because it doesn't work well in any case for, for sort of, what do you want to call it, pre-Hegelian thinking because they just didn't, they, they didn't go for the synthesis, you know? I don't know that I would have liked him, but I think he was a very interesting guy. For all musicologists who work in this area and who work on historical singers, it just must be an astonishing experience for you as a performer to be able to musically articulate what you understand of Valuti's craftsmanship. And that's that comes across so beautifully in your project, the CD, and of course the book. Do you get a sense then of, of where Valuti might sit in our understanding of how opera shifts from something that's all about the castrato male and then going into the 19th century, it's really the prima donna who kind of moves into the, the limelight and the castrato then of course, fade, fades away. And I think his, his most lasting influence would have been on the style of prima donna singing yeah. in the 1830s, 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be singing a, um, a balletic version of Traviata, and I'm singing Traviata, I'm singing Violetta. Wow. And it's not the whole thing. It's about a half an hour of her solo music, and it's anywhere from at pitch to a minor third down. Some of that, thank God. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the music is so Veluthian. Mm. The flourishes, the, the, all of the, the cadenzas that Verdi himself wrote are Veluthian. The, the weird chromatic turns and the leaps. So for me, that's Faluti's legacy, mm. is the prima donna mu- music of the mid-19th century.
thank you, Rachel and Robert, for a really fascinating interview. The first clip you heard was the Shena Echo Onumi from Carlo Manuel by Giuseppe Nicolini, an opera which Faluti sang in at least a dozen different productions. The second clip was No Copio Non Mi Sento from La Molinara by Giovanni Paisiello. Faluti wrote a set of variations on his theme, which Robert and Rachel discussed earlier in their interview. The final track was Ah, Can I Think of Days Gone By. It was composed for Valuti by Thomas Welsh, and Valuti premiered this sad, sentimental song in 1829 during his last London season. In Robert's words, this was how Valuti self-consciously bade farewell, not only to his career, but to his era. Once again, the pianist is Joachim Enders. You can buy and stream the Romantic Castrato from Takata Classics, and huge thanks to Martin Anderson and David Voister for generously sending us these tracks. Bent Notes is produced by the LGBTQ Music Study Group. We're supported by the Royal Musical Association, the Society for Music Analysis, the British Forum for Ethnomusicology, and the Society for Musicology in Ireland.